Welcome back to the Physio Foundations podcast for another week where we talk about the knowledge and skills that provide the foundation of expert clinical practice. And this is part three of a series on clinical communication. And it's the second part of my conversation with Susanna, where we talk about, or we're going to talk about applying my 10 tips for clinical communication in the clinic. So Susanna, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So before we start and get into the content for part three of our clinical communication conversation, you've just got back from the Sports Medicine Australia conference up in sunny Queensland, up on the Gold Coast. So hit five days away there and enjoying the conference and presenting your own research up there. So how'd you go? Highlights and um, what happened? Uh um, highlights. Well, th- th- there was many. I think th- the main thing is I-, I like going to these conferences and um, particularly like a combined combined one where you have not just physio, so it's not profession specific. So Sports Medicine Australia, you've got um, all professions encompassed that are involved there. So um, I always like those types of conferences because I often will purposely go into you know, topics because they often have different rooms going at the same time. So I'll I'll go into topics that, you know, I don't necessarily have a lot of um, to do with. Like I've gone previously to a cardiologist's um, specific uh, session and found out a lot about, you know, the athlete and, and heart issues. Uh, I've gone to podiatry ones but, and, you know, you're looking at footwear and all of that sort of stuff as well as um, other running biomechanics, et cetera. So that's, that's what I like about going to those specific types of conferences where you've got a whole range of topics, not just really being specific onto the one thing. Um, and also it's that, that social interaction mm. um, and you're able to talk to you know, and gain new mentors because you can, particularly if there's a a specific field of research that you like, um, often, you know, you'll be going through all this literature and there'll be certain names that keep coming up and then you go to a conference and there's one of those names that's presenting and you're like, oh, wow, this is so exciting. So it's almost like a celebrity and you're star shocked and, but you have that opportunity to then talk to them and, um, it's it's really really nice. It's such a good career progression to go to a conference for the young guns listening to this. This is um, something when you go to your first conference, um, you won't forget that, and you get to really get a taste for what you could do, what you could really do, not just in your field, but this is a multidisciplinary sports medicine conference we're talking about. And you meet all these different people, you get new ideas. It's a really nice thing to do, and really good that it's back face to face because in Australia, particularly Melbourne, we lost a lot of our conferences. And they, they went online and there's something to be said for a live event and the dinners you would have gone to and all the people you caught up with. So mm. I missed out on it, unfortunately. Teaching That's duties right. and family duties. But so some, some highlights I've got on my list were Steph Philbay, um, the ACL researcher. Hi to Steph from your research group. So her research on cross bracing for healing of ACLs, uh, really frontier, cutting edge stuff where they found 90% of ACLs healed without surgery. So that's stirring um, things up around the world in many discussions. Yeah, so that that was their initial, um, and now they're doing a much larger trial as we speak. Yeah, so watch this space. Uh, we had Pat Valance and Joel Martin and Sanam Tavakoli from my research group, and Monash Musculoskeletal Research Unit, 
presenting their research on Achilles tendinopathy. So well done to those guys. And lots of really good papers on hip and knee osteoarthritis and quad strength assessment and rate of force development, all these interesting things. Uh, anything else that you can think of? It's not a conference oh. summary. We're just, it's just oh, happened. So we, we have to talk about it. There, there was the opti knee as well. Oh, of course, yeah. So um, this is a, a group, so uh, many collaborations, so including my Latrobe um, and some international collaborations, and they're really specific uh, knee, let me think, osteoarthritis and knee injuries, um, but they've done a whole bunch of systematic reviews, all published in British Journal of Sports Medicine. Um, I think that's now come out. Um, but the, I spoke to uh, Jaddy, Jackie Whitaker from uh, British uh, Columbia, so University of British Columbia, um, and the whole reason for you know, developing this group with this huge um, interest in knees is to really get um, other people interested around the world and, you know, that that knowledge translation. I mean, it's great if you have a group um, here in Australia, but how do you get that um, knowledge out to everyone in the world? And that, I think that's what where they're coming from. So it's really exciting. So you can follow OptiKnee on Twitter um, and, you know, if you have an interest in knees, that's a, that's a really good one. Um, but, yes, no, there was just – and there, there was a, a whole bunch uh, from my group from La Trobe on hip and groin um, and also, you know, your women in sport um, and all of that, so that prep to play um, and some awards have uh, come out of that. So that's, that's always really, really nice. Mm, that's a conference you can follow online. A lot because people tweet it out but you can also see all the abstracts that are published so i guess for it, people who are more experienced and in, into sports medicine will probably be all over this already and we'll be enjoying hearing a bit of a wrap of the conference if you're a young gun or a student you've never been to a conference like that that's a bit of a taste of what you can get out of it and yeah thanks very much for the the summary let's talk about clinical communication let's talk about what we're talking about in this episode so the big thing we wanted to go through was mopping up some of the um, some of the points from last time that we didn't get to because we took a bit of a deep dive into explanation and the teach-back method. So I'm talking about in the second of this series of three that we're doing. So this is the last episode. So episode 31 of Physio Foundations. Uh, we talked about a lot about explanation and uh, a powerful way to confirm that people understand what you're talking about being the teach back method. So getting people to explain back to you uh, what they they think you've said. And that was something that you went into at length. Um, oh, just on that. So, I mean, you, you've got that teach back method. So really getting that understanding together, um, making sure that A, the patient has the understanding and um, B, that they're going to do something about it, about what you're asking them to do. Um, but one of the presentations, which was quite nice from um, Professor Jackie Whitaker, was on motivational interviewing. Um, and the, this is a new push, well, not necessarily a new push, but um, a lot more people are, are using this particular technique in the clinic. Um, and what I liked about hers was she had, and, I, and I've, I've gone back to my notes and I can't find it, but there's a specific method, um, almost has a protocol attached to it, um, how you can go through 
not just the sort of the education, but getting the intervention happening. And um, but more from uh, the patient's point of view and the patient's motivations. And uh, she had a very nice int- uh, video of an example of in one of their studies how they used motivational interviewing. Um, and so they had uh, the clinician and then they had uh, the, the patient and the patient needed to do some knee exercises. But rather than, um, you know, prescribing the exercises, it was more the angle was asking the patient what exercises do you want to do? Um, and it was interesting because I thought, oh, this is a little bit different. Um, and the patient goes, oh, you know, I've, I've had so many exercises given to me in the past and I didn't really like these ones and these ones, but, hey, I did like, you know, A, B and C. Um, and also it was really nice in terms of the, the way that you go about if they don't know what they want, you um they they have a way of asking the patient to say you know saying well would you like me to give you some examples of what others have found helps them and it was really interesting to see there was a couple of times um where that particular strategy was used by the clinician and the patient just said actually yes yes that that would be really helpful for me um and, you know, they, they went so specific into the prescription of the exercise, not only, you know, your exercise parameters, you know, types of sets, reps, weights, et cetera, but also what time of day, uh, you know, what days will you do these exercises, what time of day will you do these exercises. And also what I thought was a really good follow-up question was, How confident are you that this week you'll get your exercises done? Um, And that was, you know, and it was interesting that the the patient was there and said, oh, actually now come to think of it, you know, uh, these are the exercises, these are the times that I've said I'm going to do them. I reckon I'm 90% confident that I'll do it. I think it's realistic and I'm looking forward to it. And I thought, you know, that's actually quite a nice thing that I might start incorporating as well. So, um, yeah, anyway. That's really useful, isn't it? So um, so what exercise would you like to do? Um, do you want any a prompt there? What do you, do you want some examples of types of exercises that could be helpful and then the specifics mm. of what, where, when and how and when they could actually do them so they're realistic and then how confident are you that this week you'll get your exercises done? So really involving the person in the doing of it. I don't think anyone disagrees that a specific exercise is effective. You might have research for it. It's worked for other patients. It's worked for the person before. There's other things that get in the way of you doing that exercise Mm. that you're Mm. talking about there with with Jackie's research. And the other thing that was really, really nice was that she commented on, because they have been doing, and like I said, I forgot the actual method, the name of it, Um, but it's under the umbrella term of motivational interviewing. they got the feedback from patients because, you know, listening to it, you think, oh, my gosh, this is a bit of overkill. And she agreed, you know, that's her first thoughts. But when they asked the the patients that were involved in the study how they felt about it, um, and I think that they're, they're actually going to do a paper on this, uh, she said there was quite a few that said, 
Well, I really liked how specific they went into, you know, the prescription and no one's ever done that before. And I feel like that's what's helping me, you know, overcome or, you know, continue, you know, be um, more accountable uh, for what I need to do. Interesting. Because we often talk about simplifying things. But this is talking about the value or the perceived value of the patient of having things explained in a greater level of detail and personalised to them. Mm. Mm. So this is Jackie uh, Whitaker. Well, I'll put this in the show notes. Jackie's research presented at the Sports Medicine Australia Conference November 2022. If you're listening to this in three years' time, um, you find the abstracts for those online. Um, that's a really good little segue there. Took me off mm. the, my introduction. I was so I was summarising the um, the main points that we did in episode thirty one and where we're going in it, in this episode. But thanks for interrupting me with that because <laughs> it was gold. Very good. So we're talking about so in the last episode, uh, explanation and the power of explanation and how um, teaching back method and and confirming that the person understands you. Uh, and then we talked about the patient may not always be ready to hear what you want to say the power of reinforcing and repeating important points multiple times. Um, Susanna, you talked about hands-on treatment being the perfect time to do some education and explore people's perspectives and goals um, using their dead time um, wisely. And then if, you, it, yeah. if you're doing hands-on treatment, well, I mean, what obviously about- there's, a, <laughs> there's other ways, but um, as I know, there's some people that prefer not to do hands-on treatment, but the, you know, there are times where that's, that is what you want to do. Well, you're taping someone's ankle. You're, um, you're, you're watching a video with them. You're doing exercises. You're going through sets and reps. There's many, many things where, mm. um, the intensity of the initial interview or the subjective assessment has died down a bit and there is an opportunity to talk to per- the person and understand them. Um, and you talked about using that time wisely, yeah. Mm. And then you flipped jargon on its head. You flipped my point from episode 30 on its head and you talked about using the patient's jargon that they've brought in with them um, to help them understand their problem more deeply, which I thought was a really interesting point. Um, and then you talked about in exercise prescription, um, and how exercise prescription is really, well, communication is fundamental for a good exercise prescription routine and the, and the power of humour as well and bringing humour and not just being robotic and connecting with people through humour. Um, you talked about if someone has bought in a radiology report um, and wants to talk to you about it, that means it's meaningful for them. So don't ignore it, even if the symptoms and the function and the, what's on that report may not correlate so there's a can of worms we could open many times again in the future, but it was a very nice point to think about, not ignoring somebody's concerns, especially if they've brought it in to show you. And then we finished off talking about tips for using literature in your patient education without being um, someone who's reading from a book and without just appealing to authority. Well, it's in the literature, so therefore you talked about the nuances of using literature in your education. So it leaves us in this episode with points three, and five to 10 to discuss, but don't worry. We've covered a lot of these already. So we're going to rip through points three and five to 10 pretty quickly. This is a lot of crossover between these tips. So um, point three was consent. We're going to talk about consent and the three things you must get consent for. Even if you think you are, you may not be. We're going to talk about investigating with your communication, which was tip five. We're going to talk about monitoring the effect of interventions including exercises. 
and involving the patient or the client in that process of monitoring. We're going to talk about warnings, which is really related to the expected outcomes of the treatment and to consent as well. Does the person know what they're getting themselves in for? Uh, we're going to talk about cueing, verbal and nonverbal cueing in assessment and exercise prescription. Um, tip number nine from episode 30 was summarizing what you found and what you think it means and clarifying that people understand. And then we'll talk about tip 10, linking back to the person and who they are and their job and hobbies and work and sport and is everything you're doing relating back to that person? So let's start with consent. I've got, mm. I've got, I've put my um, thoughts on consent out there in episode 30. Um, what do you always get consent for in the clinic from patients? So what's your, what's your three things that you must get consent for? Yeah. So, so the three things that I've, I've already um, put down as my official word on the matter, uh, touching the patient. You can't touch somebody without consent mm. okay? and you can't ask them to take clothing off without explaining why it's important to do so. So yeah. it's, it's not good enough just to say, take your shirt off. Even mm. if the person does it, mm. that doesn't mean mm. that they've consented to it. And even if it's, you know, in the, a football a club change room, and I know there's different levels and degrees and, and care and um, caution that you have to take with consent. Underage patients, for example, you would have parents there with you and you may even have written consent for things. I get that. But just the principle of um, how you ask for consent, I think that's really important. And then number three, of course, is what you're doing. Hopefully, mm. there's no one listening to this who would just start doing an assessment or start doing a treatment with somebody without really thoroughly explaining to the person what they're trying to do, why they will need to do it, why it's important, and the risks. Mm. And so the, the three things being touching the person, exposing the part, and doing the procedure or the assessment. Mm, what would you add perfect. to that? Well, I mean, I had a, a patient the other week and um, I, I get a lot of people referred to me for, for hip and groin stuff and the, this um, lady has seen a lot of uh, different professionals for her groin related matter and um it was interesting you know she did have you know bike shorts on but you know i'm i'm feeling for things like the adductor insertion and you know on top of the pubis etc but i will always ask you know is it okay if if i have a feel around this area and i'll point it out and then yeah go for it go for it and then of course i like to i always compare sides so then i'll go to the other side and say now is it okay if i do it on this side um so yeah, 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 go for it, go for it. And then, you know, we did some uh, assessment, some treatment, and then I did some reassessment. And, again, I said, oh, do you mind if I have a feel through here? She said, yeah, yeah. She goes, thank you so much. No one's ever asked. <laughs> and she said, and so many times, which, you know, because I'm quite ticklish down there, so it made me be able to prepare myself. Isn't that um, interesting? yeah. Mm. So um, that was the first time someone said that and I just thought. Oh. Thanking you for mm. doing what you need to do from a medical legal perspective, which is get consent and explain what you're doing and why you're doing it. But sure. But it's also that, that I'd repeatedly sort of, you know, just, you know, offhandedly said, is, is this all right? Um, she, she also enjoyed that. So I thought, oh, okay. So don't just, just assume that when you've asked them once and then you're going straight back into maybe a vulnerable position or a vulnerable, you know, because 
a lot of times, you know, we might have to put someone's leg up in the air and, you know, um, they're not adequately covered, you know, for example, uh, women wearing skirts or even just if you've got them down into shorts and they're short shorts, you know, some sometimes people don't want to see that or you're, you're pulling people's shorts down um, where you're going to see their, you know, uh, top of their bottom or even things like bras, etc. When it comes to that, if I'm anywhere near that, you know, I say, is it all right? Are you comfortable? Um, and so I, I agree with all the, the clothing um, and all of that sort of stuff. And also I think with the consent with treatment, um, I think that's very important, but also giving them the options of treatment. So we, we can do this. Um, and this, you know, this is what I would prefer to do, but there's also these other options if you want to go down that way. So, um, like if you were to do something like dry needling, you know, here's this option, but Hey, we can do this and that, or we can just try do some exercises, um, and see if that can, um, change, uh, your presentation, et cetera. So giving them, you know, asking them, Hey, this is what I want to do. Yes. Can we do it? But B, also, you know, giving them the options of other treatments can make a big difference to just to add on to that. Yeah, so asking for consent, if you say it in a, um, it's in terms of the requirements and things you have to tick off, it does sound like extra work. But what you've just said there is you developed rapport with somebody and let them know that you understand what it's like to be vulnerable and to be a patient as well. And they to the point that they thanked you for it, I think that's mm. telling. I think that's really important and it really supports what I'm saying about this. And so, I mean, the enemy of consent is assumption. And in many mm. ways, it's it's your knowledge, the curse of knowledge. You know what you're doing and why you're doing it. All of a sudden there, you're palpating, well, I think you said the adductor tubercle and the mm. pubic symphysis of somebody. Put yourself in their shoes. What does it feel like if someone starts palpating, especially if those spots are tender as well, without telling you why they're doing it? without explaining it. Now, of course, this is, that's a really obvious example. I, I don't, hopefully there's no one listening to this who wouldn't really explain what they're doing, why they're doing it, get consent for that. But I would widen that to any area of the body mm, before mm. you place your hands on anybody. Don't assume mm. just because they've come in to see a, a, a clinician practitioner that they've given consent. And I don't mm. think it takes long. It's really tied into your, you know, want to exp- sort of explain the main problem, you confirm the history. This is what I'm doing and explain why you need to do it. So in other words, for example, Suzanne, I'm going to assess your shoulder today and in order to actually have a feel of what's going on in there and um, feel where the restriction is, I'm going to actually ask you to take your top off. Are you wearing something appropriate underneath? Yes. Are you comfortable to do that? Good. That will allow me to see you know, how the muscles are moving. I'm going to use my hands as well to have a bit of a feel of the movement and um, then we're going to do some tests that get me a bit of a measurement of how stiff your shoulder is or how weak it is, for example. The person knows what's coming up. And why are you doing it? I don't think, I just think we, Mm. uh, you know, so the enemy of a consent is assumption. It's the main point from that one. But let's move on to point five, investigate with your communication. And this is really something that you taught me over the years. Um, And having an ongoing conversation and investigation with the person um, of what you're finding what you think it means, so ongoing explanations of what the, the, the tests you're doing, what they mean, what you're finding and what you're thinking and involving the person in the process. So mm. since you taught me that one over the years, 
well, you're the main person who really showed me the value of that one. What are your thoughts? Well, often I'll do I'll do a test and and I will talk to them about what I'm finding there. So, for example, you know, I always I'll always go do the good side first or the the better side, I should say, um, and then I'll go to the problem side. And as soon as I find something that I'm thinking, oh, you know, there's going to be an asterisk here. This is something I might want to reassess. I'll let the patient know. So let's just say. Oh, hand behind back, maybe for a, for a shoulder or internal rotation for the hip or, or or something like that, where you do the one side and go, okay, that's what it should feel like on the 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 other side, and it doesn't. And I'll I'll go, oh, okay. Can you see how that's a lot stiffer on this side compared to the other side? And a lot of the patients will look at me and just go, no. No, I don't see. You're not uh, can you feel it? Not really. Okay. And then, and so then, what I'll do is I'll go. Okay, that's interesting. And so I'll go back to the the good side or the better side, and then I'll I'll show them. I'll say, see, this is what's normal for you. Can you feel that? And they're like, yes. Okay, now let's go back to that other side. So I'll repeat the test for them, and they're like, oh yeah, I see what you mean. Um, and it's really quite valuable for them because that way, when I do some sort of intervention and then I reassess, they've already got that baseline feeling of what it was like before we did it. So they'll actually um, see if things have changed. So it's not just me uh, writing down some numbers and telling them, oh, look, that's better. Um, they actually go, oh, yeah, that is better, or, you know, like a straight leg raise or a slump test or whatever you're doing. But if you do, if I do find something or if you find something that you, you're going to want to reassess, let them know and really highlight it. The other thing that can be very, very powerful is if you know, like, for example, I like to, you know, just test uh, high hip flexion whilst the person's sitting. Um, so I'll get them sitting with their thighs supported and then they'll lift up the thigh, you know, about 45 degrees, But um, and then I'll push down and I'll say, okay, just like a just a, a quick, I guess, strength so measure. Re- but it's like a, resisted static willingness to yeah. push sort of test, yeah. Yeah, and then and they'll go, okay, yeah, that was a little bit difficult. And then I'll just start laughing and I'll just say, now I'm interested to see how you go on the other side. Good luck, you know. And they're like, what? <laughs> and then and then they, they can't resist me more than likely, yeah. So about 90, 95% of the time they can't and they see that weakness um, on that side straight away. And it's not necessarily a true weakness because I'll do some intervention and then we'll go redo the test and, hey, now they, they can resist me quite easily. Um, so, you know, that activation um, and all of that sort of stuff. So, But if you can sort of almost predict what's going to happen, um, like even calf raises, you know, let's do a good side first. I reckon you'll be up and, you, you know, that that's where knowing the literature, knowing where normative values sit can be very powerful um, because you you can you can refer to them also and say, look, this is what I'm expecting. Let's see how you go. And if you say it before a test, it's a lot more meaningful than after the test mm. because they've already got a number. And so if they then fail to reach that number, they're already like, oh, 
okay, this is something that I'm going to have to work at and which really ties nicely into whatever you then decide for your intervention because they can already see that they need to work on something and they can already see that the next time they come in, you're going to be testing that and it gives them the motivation that they want to be better at that test the next time they see you. And I'll often say, now we've got a test to show whether you've done, you know, whether you're going to do the exercises or not. You know, this is really up to you. Um, and it's nice because they'll come back and if they haven't done what they needed to do, they're pretty upfront with you straight away and the reasons why not. And it's rather than sort of saying, oh, yes, I've, you know, have you done your exercises? Yes, yes, I have. And, they, and they're just trying to do that clinician pleasing. Um, and then you test them and you're thinking, hang on, you know, our assessments are about the same as the last time I saw you. So getting that rapport and that confidence uh, or allowing them to have the confidence to tell you when they haven't done stuff is also good. Mm. If I, I could summarise, so that's point five and six covered there, investigate with your communication and then monitoring the effect of interventions. And if I could summarise that in the sentence, it would be involve the person in the process of assessment and treatment. Mm. So it's really helpful. And then what about warnings? This is point seven, warnings. We talked about, um, well, I did in episode 30, um, the communication aspects of warnings. So obviously there are minor and major things that can go wrong. Um, if everything from the risk of soreness to the risk of, of being uncomfortable during a procedure for many, many different ways that you could be uncomfortable through to more serious risks. Um, what do you, how do you approach giving warnings to people without um, frightening them? One thing that I, I often tell patients is... Um, you know, let's see how you go. And if you're better, that's great. Um, and it will tell us what we need to do, like we're going in the right direction, et cetera. Um, but if you're worse when you come back, that's not necessarily a bad thing because um, it could be that we've just done, we're in the right direction, but we've just done a bit too much. Or, um, you know, maybe we need to, you know, redefine what we're looking at and then we can go at a, at a different approach. The worst thing is, is when, you know, I'll see a lot of people that have seen other clinicians and haven't necessarily got um, a good outcome. And by and large, what I see is the same intervention was applied with the same results. So there was no progression and then the same intervention again, no progression, same intervention. And you get this going and it, the, the thing is the longer this person is in that sort of rehab cycle um, where things aren't improving, the more complicated their presentation is going to be um, because you're going to get things happening, you know, at that higher level, you know, that chronic pain, um, the mental health, the social implications of that, you know, they're not able to say they're, they're doing tennis and that's their, that's their own social um, outlet. Now they can't play tennis with their friends or they can't go for a run uh, in their morning with their running group or whatever it is, you know, it can make a huge 
difference uh, the longer they're in that rehab. I mean, I know uh, at a professional uh, sports level, um, athletes are there because they're so good at their sport, whatever, you know, this chosen sport is. But often growing up, it's that sport where, you know, when things weren't the best, that was their outlet or, you know, they got stressed, you know, I'm going to go uh, go and play a little bit of cricket or I'm going to go and run on the beach or I'm going to get on my bike, you know, whatever it is, exercise has helped them through things. So um, the longer they're in the rehab <laughs> sort of uh, cycle, the harder it is for them because, you know, they're used to, doing their sport um, and if they don't have that. So you've got to acknowledge the mental health um, as well. And the worst thing is is when people get, get out of that rehab cycle and now they're going back to sport or uh, performance or even if it's just activities of daily life, um, the biggest thing is you want to have enough uh sort of rapport with your patient and you want them to have enough confidence in you that if they fail for whatever reason, so they have a reoccurrence, so let's say it's low back pain, for example, that they come back to you so that, you know, you've got a plan, you know, um, and getting them to self-manage. Because the worst thing is, is you've done this really good bout of intervention let's say you've done really good education um, and intervention and then they they go off and then three months later they have uh, a recurrence they're going to think that all that stuff that they've done with you has been for nothing and then they'll go off and see another uh, professional and then they can be in that cycle but if You've already educated them that, hey, you know, this is really good what we've got here. Um, We've got you back to, you know, you've you've ticked off all their goals. But just to let you know, you know, with particularly, say, low back pain, you know, you've got a high risk of reoccurrence and this um, could happen. And so now you have an idea of what you can do in the early phase. Um, And that's why often what I'll get patients to do is have um, just a couple of tests. And that's why I always find, you know, a couple of tests that they can do at home. Um, And particularly if they're at a a high level of sport or if they're in that sort of older age group, so middle age onwards, I'll often get them to do one or two tests that they do every day to monitor, so monitor their back, monitor their hip, monitor their shoulder, whatever it is, because if they do it every day, they'll know a difference. Um, So say, you know, I'll get them just to do lying down, do a couple of back extensions. So one morning they'll do their back extensions. They feel fine. Great. Off they go. The next morning, oh, now they can feel that their back is stiff. Now they actually have an opportunity to do something about it. So they might go do some stretches, et cetera, and reassess, oh, now my back's good. Now I can go on with my day. But it also gives them time to reflect on what is it that I did the day before that's possibly given me this stiff back. So then they know um, what uh, sort of what activities or what things affect their back. So they could have been, you know, they've gone on a holiday and they've been sitting in a car or an aeroplane for a long time. And it's like, oh, okay. And so the next time that they do it, before they go to bed, 
they might, or once they get to the hotel room, they might just do some stretches on their back so that they don't wake up the next morning with a stiff back. Or they might have overdone it doing gardening or it might have been they played a different sport or having said that, they might have a day where they wake up in the morning and their back just feels fantastic. So I always tell them, you know, this is the worst case scenario. You'll, you'll, you'll figure out that. But also you might, you want to know what your back likes to do. Mm. So it's like, oh, hang on, I went surfing with my friends and I had a fantastic time and now, oh, look, this back feels really good. So maybe the surfing is a good thing. Mm, you're tying the warnings about what could go bad in with that reflection about what can go good. What can work? Yeah, and then more importantly is when, you know, I'm about to discharge them, I'll say, now that you've got this test and then you're going to do it every day for the rest of your life, um, and I really put it in there because um, particularly for backs and, and other presentations, but if they get that in their head, they're like, now I know how to manage it. Um, and if, you know, you have you know, it's restricted, whatever test, if, if it's restricted for quite a few days and you've done all the things that we've talked about and that hasn't improved it, that's the time to go see someone and do more like a preventative. For the, so don't wait until you, you know, you've hurt your back again. You know, does that make sense? So, that, mm. so they're really active. So it might be, oh, I just can't loosen up the back. I can't get that full uh, lumbar extension. They go see you once, you've got it back, and there you go, rather than waiting for, you know, now now their back's stiff and sore and off they go. They play a whole game of uh, golf, which is a lot, <laughs> and particularly if they don't have, uh, the range there and they, they don't have the range now in their hips as well, um, that can have, you know, you know they're, they're on the floor the next day and they're like, oh, I didn't even know, you know, why has this happened to me? Or, you know, because usually it's a little thing that they've done that will flare up a back and then they'll think it's because I picked up that little bit of hair off the ground. I was like, well, no, I'm pretty sure that's not what's. <laughs> However, what, you did, yeah, what did you do for the, the week beforehand? Yeah. And you're getting people to, by, by taking many instances of measurements daily, as you said, you're getting people to reflect on not just what they've done that day, but also what mm. they've been doing across time and, it's what what struck me about that was your emphasis there on empowering the patient to do their own measurements, do their own reflection, do their own education. Mm. It's really important. Let's see I, how you go. Was your question? Now let's rather than um, rather than giving them an answer. This is what will happen. Let's mm. see how you go, and you're going to try this, and you're going to reflect on it, measure it, reassess it, and come back. And then you're going to stabilize somewhere and, and figure out where, uh, how you can manage this yourself. Yeah, and often I'll see these patients later on, um, and they'll they'll be dictating to me what they need. You know, they'll be like, "Yep, this, you know, this is what helped. You know, when when this particular thing happened last time, this is what I need from you that helped a lot." And then you only see them once or twice, and then it's like, "Yep, see you later." Mm. Um, which is, yeah, it, it, it's really, really nice. And I think I'll, I've learned that from a couple of my patients early on in my career. And these were in their 80s. Um, I can think of two off the top of my head that I really, it really struck me. So one, 
one man, he had really, really bad back pain um, in his 60s and uh, he really struggled with it, saw multiple, multiple clinicians um, and then ended up with a chiropractor and uh, the chiropractor said, hey, you live by the beach, don't you? And he said, yep, I do. And he said, you know, if you swim every day, regardless of the temperature, um, you will find that your back will be happy and you won't need to see me or anyone else, well, not necessarily ever again, but the fact that he then did, that's what he ended up doing. So he'd do a couple of stretches in the morning and then he'd go swimming. And I saw him not for his back. He said, you know, he was in his 80s. He'd never had back pain ever again. Um, I was actually seeing him for his hip. But I just remember because this is where, you know, you, you get these funny moments where then, you know, I was like, so how was your swim this morning? And this was in the middle of winter and this was in Adelaide, so southern Australia, so the, the water is quite cold. So I only lasted five minutes. <laughs> and I, I just went, did you wear a wetsuit? And he said, well, what's that? <laughs> and so we went in and I said, you know, you can get gloves as well because he was really um, – talking about his hands being really sore. And then the next time I saw him, he said, oh, thank you for that. Um, I, I spent, you know, an hour swimming this morning I, and I got this brand new wetsuit and these nice new gloves and, hey, it's helping my hip as well. well but- legend. <laughs> Wim Hof was there as well and he only lasted 10 minutes, so that's good. <laughs> But that, I mean, that was good. And then I had another guy, same thing. Um, he has his routine. Um, and again, I know people like funny stories and this is quite a funny story um, because I actually saw, I saw his wife and I, you know, I knew where they lived because I could see the address and I knew the house and the house was well known to the neighbourhood because it backed onto this sort of walking trail by the creek. And uh, anyway, I got talking to the husband and, you know, he said, you know, he also has back pain, et cetera. He goes, but, you know, I've told my wife she needs to um, do the exercises every morning with me. And look, this, this particular gentleman, you know, he had his back pain again. Same thing. He was in his 80s and he had this real bad bout of back pain in his 60s. He was given, you know, it's just five minutes of these particular stretches that he would do every morning. And he was able to manage his back, or you know, the whole way through till you know when I saw him, and he was still going fine. I was seeing the wife, but the funny thing is, is he was well known for these stretches because he had a two-story house, and where oh, no. he did these stretches <laughs> was in this full-length window, <laughs> where if you were to walk past, you'd see him do it in in his underwear. <laughs> so. And I must admit, I have seen him doing his stretches. In he just doesn't care. <laughs> this is where I stretch. <laughs> but this hey, is my morning routine. He was able to manage his back pain and, the, and good on him. <laughs> Gold. <laughs> you know, um, you're telling me these stories and it's, it's reminded me because you've, we've known each other since we've been new grads. And I remember as a new grad um, treating a patient, I, I think that, that had a flare up of some sort and I'd taken it personally. And you said that to me. You said the same thing. You said, what you say to people is if you're getting worse, it's not necessarily, or you have, or you get worse after an intervention or after an exercise, it's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, mm. So we, it may mean that we need to reevaluate. It means that you understand now the effect that that has. Maybe we did a bit too much. Um, maybe you need to do more of it. Um, maybe we can take a different approach. 
I found that quite um, stress relieving as a new grad to know mm. that it's just the process. Uh, it's like a thermostat on the wall. They're measuring the temperature. It's going to be too high, too low. And we could eventually find a sort of homeostasis, a midpoint there, set point. And which is what you're talking about. We're getting people to do a daily measurement and empower mm. themselves with that information. And they know, they see the patterns. Um, and it's beyond, I mean, the, this conversation started with warnings. Point number seven was warnings, giving a clear warning to somebody. And your points were really valid about warnings. Let's, let's warn people about the fact that if lower back pain is really prone to recurrence, it's probably going to come back at some stage. So they understand that, the bigger picture and, of it, not just yeah, what's happening right there. And they have right a plan. Mm. And they have a plan for when that does occur. That's the biggest thing. Mm. Is yeah, definitely. Like, so knowing it could happen again, but to be really confident in what you've been able to give them is you've also given them a plan. So, you know, your management doesn't stop to when they get to, you know, back to everything. It stops when they've got the knowledge of, you know, what it is that they've got and what they can do if it happens again. Like it's really, really important. I mean, if you look at all the sporting literature and a lot of, you know, the, the, the musculoskeletal stuff, you know, a lot of the risk factors of injuries are if you've got a past history of that particular injury. Mm. So, yeah. So that's a part of your warning is that this is more than likely, it's, it's possible that this will come back. So the person is prepared and they know and they can be invested in that outcome and trying to prevent it themselves. Yeah, that's really gold. You know, we've sort of, we've covered items or items, it sounds very formal, tips, nine and 10 already. Tip nine was summarizing what you've found and what you think it means and really clarifying people understand and involving them in the the process of assessment and and decision-making. And then tip number 10 from episode 30 was linking to the person and their condition, which is something you've been talking about for the last 40 minutes or so. So knowing the person and knowing what makes them tick and their job and their hobbies and sport and relating what you're doing and the outcome to the person and giving them that, that ownership of what's going on. If we jump back for a final point to point number eight, which was cueing. So I talked briefly about this, the importance of verbal and nonverbal cueing. This is something that's a bit of fun. It's something that you often talk about um, in terms of giving people novel, funny cues to get them to realize the way they're walking or the way they're doing an exercise. Um, tell us a bit more about how you, you know, I guess the verbal and nonverbal ways you cue people to move well and to do exercise as well. I think just understanding that people learn in different ways, you know, that, you know, that they do talk about, you know, the ones that are seers, doers, feelers, all that sort of stuff. And, they're, and they're, you know, there's other things that uh, is out or out there of how we learn and, um, you know, through practice, et cetera. But giving the opportunity to learn in multiple ways, which means if you're going to give an exercise as an example, um, you know, talk about the exercise, so describe it, then show it so that they can actually see what you what it is that you want them to do, then get them to do it so that they can feel it, 
and then give them some feedback. So whether that's you might be giving them some manual feedback with your hands, you might be giving them visual feedback, you know, with some mirrors, et cetera, or it might just be verbal, um, and then give them the opportunity to ask questions. But it's also really important, particularly if you're giving people exercises, is to ask them where do they feel it, um, you know, and is that where you expect it to be? Um, and, you know, yes, ask about their pain, but try not to focus too much on it. Like if you're getting them to do something which you're expecting them not to flare up their pain and you're asking them about their pain, it's almost setting themselves, setting them up to focus on the pain rather than the exercise. So often, you know, I'll say I, I don't, want you know this to be painful or um i am expecting a certain amount of pain but what i don't want so i'll talk about what i don't want and that is i don't want the pain to get worse um and i don't want it to change so let's say they've got a dull constant ache i don't want that to get sharp mm. or the intensity to spike at any point so if they just concentrate on those things you know that you know that doesn't get worse and it's not sharp pain then we can leave that pain in the box and just focus more on um the intervention and even because the other thing that we need to, because, you know, pain is a big thing and, the, you know, the pain science, there's a lot of research into it, et cetera. Um, but what I find is, you know, pain may be the last thing that improves. So, you know, don't necessarily focus on it. So when you, you're cueing someone and you're giving them all the right things um, and they're doing what you want them to do, it's really powerful to then reassess some of those points that you feel that your intervention or that exercise is going to improve. And then when they see that it has improved it, despite them feeling pain, they're like, ah, oh, and they get more confidence uh, with doing that exercise or whatever intervention it is that you're, you're going to do with them. Um, and then it gives them not just that confidence but that motivation to keep going with it because they can see it. And I think one of the powerful things that I got, and this was from um, jo Joanne Kemp, who's a big uh, person in the hip world, um, and she's at La Trobe as well and uh, is, is one of my mentors, was I liked how she put it that sometimes the intervention, so let's say a specific exercise, that can be just as powerful as a, a pain medication. So you talk to them about, you know, let's say your knee hurts and you, you take an anti-inflammatory and it gets better, you know. Let's do these exercises or this one or two exercises and, oh, look, your knee's better. So you can take them in the same way in that it hurts, I'll do a couple of exercises and, oh, it, which is the same as, you know, okay, it hurts, I'm going to take a couple of pills and that improves it. And then they're more active in, you know, trying to resolve what they've got and they get better outcomes. So there is no five minutes here allocated to patient education, whatever that is. It, what you're saying here is almost everything that's happening from the very first interaction with the person involves this feedback loop of, communication and, and education where your, your end point you're trying to get to is empowering them to manage themselves, which is what you want. 
and then you can make your you can make your money from the refer- rather than endlessly over treating over servicing this this person for the rest of their life. They can get better, self manage, and recommend you from yeah. to someone else who you can help. So much more, um, yeah, and, and, positive and way again, to look at it. This is probably stuff that I, I learned early on because look, I used to work. Uh, I mean, we've done a podcast about my career and, you know, I've, I've worked in multiple, multiple settings um, and, you know, one of them was, you know, uh, in work cover, so looking at, you know, work injuries in uh, specific factories. So I was, you know, in a chicken factory and I was also in a car factory and an electrical factory and I was even uh, went to a winery at one point because uh, they were getting a lot of low back pain from collecting the grapes off the wine. But um, what is really quickly evident is you'll have people that go on work cover because, yes, they've had an injury at work um, and you can get those that the, those people that get really angry at the system. They, they feel mm. that work has given them the injury and work has to pay for it and, um, and that's not a healthy way of being because you get, because you can really, you can see how they develop chronic pain very quickly. There's some unhealthy uh, emotions in that in that thought process of resentment and some things that are never going to be a healthy place to, to hang out, yeah. Yeah, and then you've got the other ones that are embarrassed about being, you know, that they've hurt themselves and they just they just want to get it all right so that she, they can just get back to how it was. And they, and they tend to be really, really quick. So often what I would do is because people will can become dependent on the clinician um, and I've seen this particularly in work cover because they'll, they'll go and they'll, go get them, let's say their massage or they'll go do their hydrotherapy and that's the only thing that helps their pain. And so then they become dependent on, well, I have to go to my appointment because that's the only thing that's going to help my pain. So I often will get those types of people and say, look, I'm glad that I can help you within the session to improve you. But and I And I do care and I will care when you're here but I, I don't live with you. You know, I'm not that person that's always with you. You're the one that lives in your own body um, and you've got to take charge of it so that when, you know, things aren't going right, you know, you need to be the one that looks after yourself um, because I think sometimes they just get too dependent on others trying to help them um, because they feel like it wasn't their fault and a lot of times it isn't their fault. No one wants it. But if they understand that, hey, it's it's themselves that are going to get themselves better, um, sometimes that can change them pretty quickly on which track they go down. Mm. Building people's confidence and motivation to keep going through building their understanding. They're your words that I wrote down. I thought that was a really <laughs> nice way to summarise what you've, what you've said there. There's so much in there that we can all learn from and apply. We've got through our 10, or at least our commentary in two episodes, last two episodes and commentary on the 10 tips for clinical communication. And you've taken those and applied them and taken them a lot further than I did. So I'm very grateful. And we're going to leave it there. So anything else you want to add? Uh, Exit signs. They're on the way out. Okay, here we go. And Velcro. What a ripper. Okay. 
Um, and and that's uh, that's what we have today. <laughs> There's more where that came from. Lucky, lucky we can edit this stuff out. It's good. Um, mm. But we, yeah, we're it's it's good fun. We, we are. I've got one more. I've got one more. <laughs> Help. Why did the kids take a ladder to school? Because they went to high school. Ah, there you go. Very good. Right, right. We've got a whole episode of of that stuff coming up in the, the <laughs> Christmas holiday special. But everyone, if you, if you made it this far, you've done very well. You've been you've had Susanna to listen to this time, which um, is always entertaining, and we're very grateful for. Well, I'm very grateful. I'm sure you are for Susanna coming on and sharing her clinical expertise, and um, that was gold. Thank you. So I, now, it's, actually, one yeah. one more thing. Um, the one thing, like my approach is just have fun in the clinic. You know, the, the best thing that I've ever learned was when I was. Uh, a student, I was put on a placement with other students that uh, had memorised a textbook verbatim and I was not one of those and I was, my confidence was low because the tutor would ask questions and they were like bang, bang, bang with with facts, with knowledge and then, you know, I'd be there going, ah, I don't know. And so I was, I was feeling really down in the dumps and one of my friend's said the most powerful thing to me now, and I've kept this uh, to this day, and he said, don't worry about it, Susanna. What you need to do is learn from your patient. The person that's there in front of you, learn from them um, and, that, and you know, make it fun, and, then that's, and that's, that's what I've done. And, and I must admit I love my work um, and, I, and I enjoy it, and I think that that's wise because I'm I'm there. I'm focused on the patient. I'm focused on you know what they're coming in. You know what what's their history? What why have they got this issue? Um, what can you do to make their lives better? I mean, let, let's be honest. That's what you're doing is making their life better by them not having to think of all the things they can't do. You, you're there to show them what they can do and what what they can get back to. That's brilliant. That's a great and way to end it. Merry Christmas. Oh, Merry Christmas. <laughs> well, it's coming soon, November. <laughs> Learn from your patient. Learn from the person in front of you. There's some wisdom right there. So everyone, um, you've got plenty there to put into, uh, into action in the clinic or in your education and in your own journey. So I hope you found that as helpful as I did. Um, please let us know what you think. Connect with us via all the details that are in the show notes. Leave me a comment or send me an email. If you want to um, continue the conversation, please do and share the episode with a friend. But until next time, this is Susanna and Luke wishing you all the very best with your studying, professional development and lifelong learning. 